0: Welcome to our second Work Healthy podcast. You're very welcome. You know, after today's interview with Jim Lair, I actually had to check my family tree just to see if we were actually related, (laughs) because honestly, we share the same view on so, so many topics. Having written over 17 books, coached some of the highest performing sports stars in the world and trained everybody from anti-terrorist teams, FBI agents, special forces, surgeons, what Jim Laird doesn't know about high performance isn't worth knowing. In this interview, we learn about the importance of energy management rather than time management. Why stress is actually a good thing and, in fact, critical to your life. Why we need to oscillate more, stop sleepwalking, replace our negative inner voice with a kinder coach and why you should pick the words now that you want on your gravestone when you die. In an attempt at full disclosure and authenticity, I started the interview by sharing a very personal story about my own past. One thing before we start, and that's that as a kid, I don't know if you did this, but um, whenever we were playing sports, we had to take on uh, the, the persona of different people and whenever I play tennis
1: uh, whether it was sports superhero or any hooper you, know, you had to wear the cape you had to wear the hat you had to well, be that person and that's what made you invincible that's how you got your confidence
0: and I was Jimmy Connors always I I, I honestly and Jimmy Connors wasn't the man who was winning everything back then uh, there were many other people but for some reason I associated with Jimmy Connors and I think captured your spirit I think I think it was the ability to do the, <laughs> that that really won it for me. But little did I know that that you would be um, uh, working with him and uh, with fantastic other um, players um, to get them to where you have got them to. But listen, we can we can talk a little bit about that. But I mean, obviously, firstly, um, I've read your book and it's it's fantastic. It's hard. It's yep. it's not a normal book if you know what I mean. Um, and and we can talk about that, but. I know it's kind of strange probably to, to be. yeah, Stephen Covey always talked, one of his habits was begin with the end in mind, Um, and one of the kind of ending pieces around legacy, and I'd love you just to talk a little bit about why you think it's so important that people consider legacy, because that's obviously something that maybe some people start to consider in their later years, um, but you're kind of challenging everybody to kind of consider it early, so why are you doing that?
1: You know, it's interesting that um, there are two indisputable facts in life. One is that you were born, and the other is that you will die. And between your birth and your death, there is going to be some impact on the world that you entered because of your presence, you're going to have some kind of, there will be an effect that you had on others, on organizations, on if you had a big sphere of influence, maybe even on the world stage, there will be some kind of impact that you leave after you are gone. And no matter who I'm working with, I'm always interested in knowing what that impact you would like for it to be, as opposed to just letting it happen. Let's go to the end of your life and try to determine very consciously, let's assume you're about to check out and you're looking back over your life. What would be the legacy that you would like to leave behind as the impact that you had when you were here and then let's move forward and see what has to happen because the legacy won't happen unless you actually have an idea of what it is that you would like to see before your final day comes. And you're always trying to align yourself, with what you believe, your sense of purpose, your sense of, you know, you didn't have much choice in being born. It just happened. And nobody, you know, you won the lottery of life, let's put it that way. And you didn't get to choose your hair color. You didn't get to choose your parents. You didn't get to choose whether you had brothers or sisters. You didn't get to choose what century you were born in. You didn't get to choose what continent you were born in. I could go on and on. There are very few things that you got to have any choice in. The one thing you do have choice now, and that is you could decide the impact you want to have in whatever time you are here. That is your choice. And I, I think it's really instructive for people to go to the end of their life and to try to understand if this is something you could make a decision about and actually look at it to preload this into your brain. What is the meaning of life for you? And most importantly, how do you want this life that you have to represent something that's important to you as part of your legacy for being here? And so people start, start thinking about it and it's very powerful for people. It's people don't like going to the end of their life. (laughs) but when they start thinking about it and you really push them um i have this exercise i call it the tombstone exercise where they actually get in advance they normally don't get to choose this again they get to choose what they want inscribed chiseled into their tombstone and um and they are allowed like six words or two very brief sentences that they want to represent the truth of who they were when they were here. That would that would really define for them the ultimate of a successful life for them. And uh, and then they have to begin to work. You don't just you don't just get those because you want them. You have to work back. What does it mean for whatever time I have if that's going to be the the crowning achievement of my life, what what is it that I have to do to make those become real? You can't just put fake stuff. A lot of times people will put something on your gravestone that was not true just to make everyone feel good. That's what this exercise is not. You have to earn those. And if, um, if you understand what it is, every single decision you make should be vetted through The ultimate prism through which you're deciding success or failure of your life. What are the hallmarks of a successful life for you? So, you know, your legacy is ultimately the sum of all the decisions and choices you've made since you were here on planet Earth. And your legacy will most likely be defined in terms of impact on others and on the world. But ultimately, how do people remember you? What did you, what was the impact you had on them? And more important than what you said was how you made them feel, how you treated them. Ultimately, your treatment of others and the character that you possess as a human being will shine far and above any of your extrinsic achievements. And most people, when they think about their tombstone, well, I'd love to have that I was CEO and but when you really think about it, none of those extrinsic markets of success make the cut. No one really cares about that. Yeah. And so you get blinded, all of your energy goes in scaling the mountain as opposed to how you treat people on the way to the mountaintop, which will become the definition of what you leave behind. So I'd love to start at the end and work backward. And it's extremely compelling. I had, I won't mention his name, but he is a current NBA National Basketball Association superstar. And one of the things that he wanted on his tombstone as his legacy for others is that he had no regrets as a basketball player. He was all in. He absolutely, in every game, every practice, everything he did, was to maximize the chance that he could be the best he could be. And if he was all in, he could live with whatever happened, whatever injuries, however, you know, whatever his win-loss record, his points get, you know. But his ultimate criteria for a success in basketball was to is to have no regrets in terms of being able to say, I gave everything I had to give. And then he works back from that to every practice, every interaction, everything he's doing to make sure that that, in fact, will be the legacy he leaves behind. When people think of him, they want to think that this guy was all in.
0: So so when I'm when I'm reading what you say around this and and hearing you now, I'm thinking one of the things that you seem to focus on is awareness. And it's like as if people are are lacking a sense of awareness and they're kind of just sleepwalking through life. I've, I've kind of noticed this recently with people um, who are around my own age. Um, I'm 55 and they've kind of, you know, worked through life on this assumption that I work hard, I'll pay off my mortgage, I'll get to 55, I'll be debt free and I'll be happy. And then they suddenly get there and they go, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. It was the journey um, that I should have been living all the time and the moments that matter through that. This, this end goal is crazy. So are you trying to wake people up?
1: So people, um, a lot of people uh, that are, you know, really wonderful people are sleepwalking through life. Mm-hmm. They are what other people have told them to be. They've been promised that happiness comes from being successful in business, from yeah. having money, from being able to have children, send them to nice schools, yeah. and uh, to have a nice car, to be able to have a great retirement. And then at 55, I'll be able to hang this up, and I'll be one happy dude or do yes because yep. I have... Um, I've I've done what the markers of success society says, I'm a successful person. And then they look inside and go, you know, I don't know if this is all there is, this is kind of, this is really not what I really had hoped it would be. And there's so much more, you know, we have a superpower as human beings. There's no question about it. We don't have many superpowers, but we have one. And it is, For me, it is the evolutionary centerpiece. It is the masterpiece of evolution. And it really is represented by the fact that the brain in some magnificent way evolved so that it actually could watch itself operate. Yeah. You actually can reflect on outside of yourself, what the heck am I doing here? What am I saying here? <laughs> What's the trajectory of my life? The deer or the bear in the forest has awareness and they're very keen to anything that triggers any kind of connection to survival. And we have that same thing. We are aware, we can be completely aware of our environment. I'm aware of this and that, and you know all the things that are going on. But there is a special, special capability this um capacity that i would call reflective consciousness that you actually can watch yourself the brain can watch itself operate and can stop it in a nanosecond from going in a particular direction if you want to live a conscious life you know the duck on the pond is always engaged fully engaged in the moment you know, they they don't have this big brain where they can think about the future, extrapolate into the future and the past. They're just right here and they're just sort of driven by survival instincts. But I don't think I want to be like the duck and just guide through life and let instincts carry me through. I want to be um, actively engaged in having the most exhilarating life possible and making sure whatever trajectory I am on I am watching this very carefully through this magnificent lens of reflective consciousness. I can watch my brain speak to itself, and it's going, "You're a bonehead, stupid!" All this interior chatter. I go, no, that's not that's not the coach I want in my head. Where did yeah. that come from? That's a terrible choice to, you know, watch the late movie and then not really get a chance to. Have my normal routine in the morning and to actually spend time with my kids and before i leave for work and that one bad decision has cascaded into a calamity for that day and if i had risen above that and said wait a minute what really is important and that's the beauty i can go to the end of my life the deer or the duck cannot do that the deer or the duck is aware that it's exi- that it is alive in a sense but It has no understanding that one day it's going to die. As it gets older, that dog that you have, it doesn't understand. Now it can't get up and down the stairs. It just, well, that's what it is. But it doesn't realize it's getting closer to death. There's no existential angst with the dog unless there's pain. But human beings, we know there is an end that will come. And so we have to decide What it is we want to leave behind, what is this, what is the life we want to live? And that ability creates all kinds of anxiety, but it also creates the possibility that we have choice. We can choose how we want to live our life. We can make choices that actually reflect ultimately about how we want to exit planet Earth. And that understanding is what gives us agency, gives us some control over where we end up in life. And that is why reflective consciousness or conscious awareness, however you want to put it, is our superpower. No other species on planet Earth has that capability. I have no idea how this happened over hundreds of thousands of years, but it did.
0: The art of journaling allows somebody become skillful at that. Is that true?
1: So I'm a huge fan of journaling. And what journaling does is it's reflect we've learned that learning uh, occurs, the most important part of learning occurs in reflection. that you know there, there, the the learning that sticks that actually gets through to you is occurring when you pause and reflect on this lecture that you just heard or the mm-hmm. words that Jim Lair just spoke. Yeah. And then you think about, well, what does that have to do with me or And all of a sudden you start reflecting on other issues and the trajectory of your life and what we've learned is that we at the institute we had you know this incredible living laboratory of high performers from every conceivable arena of high performance some life and death like surgeons and special forces and fbi anti-terrorist teams and so forth but These, um, the the whole idea of trying to figure out how do you get stuff to stick? If I ask you, you only had one thing to do to try to remember something that you didn't want to forget. We only only could do one thing. Most people would say, I'd write it down. And we have looked at all the research in this area. We actually, for for 30 years, we experimented with visualization, self-talk, everything imaginable and what we ended up with was journaling actually had the greatest impact on people's ability to make self-directed change and we believed and there's something in it isn't the same as writing on your computer you have to do it with your hand you can print or you can write cursive but it doesn't have you can fly with your fingers and whether or not we there's neuroscience that says it's because you're crossing the corpus callosum, this dividing line, your hand goes back and forth as opposed to just linearity being on the same side. We don't know exactly. All we know is this executive function in the brain is more likely to capture what it is you're writing. And so our writing is always the stuff we want rather than the stuff we don't want or the things we're upset about. There is a journaling practice where you just cathartically release all the venom inside of you. That is not what we do. What we're doing is we're scripting how we want this private voice to speak to us in good times and bad times and give us advice. I call it your, your own personal Yoda, your own decision advisor, to actually help you get home, to get you to the end of your life and to end up where you want to end up. And we found nothing as powerful as handwriting, just the simple movement of your hand connecting to this executive function in your brain that helps it to actually, it codes it more more permanently. And the more you write it, you myelinate these neural pathways repeatedly, and all of a sudden it goes from a four-wheel drive, rough road to a six-lane neural highway, and it's actually taking you where you want to go in life. So your brain is always referencing something in making decisions. And we did everything we could. We, we try to get with the best neuroscience people on the planet to try to help us understand where is all this referencing occurring and what are we referencing when we make a decision? Because decision-making is the whole deal. And what we're ultimately trying to do is make decisions that we will look back on in our life and say if i had to do it over i would with the same information that's what i would decide and it's helping me complete the life to live the life i want to live and have the legacy i want to have
0: it's it's amazing really isn't it because um i think one of the things you've written about is this human flaw um that you know morally uh, we can fall into the trap of, of doing things wrong but Maybe if we've journaled and we've kind of told ourselves what we want our legacy to be, there's like a a lack of consistency if I then am making poor moral decisions. So do you think this is kind of aimed at keeping people on the straight and narrow?
1: Well, there's no question about it. I it's a little depressing now I will strike a little. It's quite depressing for me. The more I got into the understanding of how flawed our moral and ethical system is, Um, it, it it actually is quite a wonder that we're able to navigate at all in life on a moral and ethical plane, but there is evil in the world. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no question about it. I've experienced it. We've all experienced it. And when you look at, you know, the the gassing of people, and then they come home and they, um, 6,000 Jews and, and they come home and have dinner with their families and feel like they're good people They raise their children then there there's something going on in the brain yeah. that's allowing this to happen and you don't feel the least bit guilty maybe you have some nightmares occasionally but you do you can the human system is capable of duping itself the mm. brain exists for one reason it's basically to enable you to survive to get what you want and need mm. be very careful what you tell it because it will figure out a way the brain doesn't want to feel guilty. It wants you to feel like you're a good person. So you, if you want something bad enough, if you want that if you want to become a billionaire by the age of 55 and you put that you you load that into this neural processor between your ears and you don't load in what the guidelines for that might be, you can end up being a Bernie Madoff you've got there, you, you scale the mountain, but there were no guidelines for how you did it. And you could cheat, steal, do whatever you wanted to do. And you don't even feel the least bit remorseful except you got caught. Mm. And the brain actually can hijack itself because it did what it thought it was supposed to do and get you what you wanted. And so it employs an enormous number of ingenious techniques to distort reality so that you actually don't understand and it's all done outside of your country you're not aware of this you're actually feeling good about it because you think well maybe this is the best thing for the world whether it's some hideous thing in rwanda or something else the genocides that occur or all the the terrible things that are happening on planet earth Somehow the human brain is capable of doing that and allowing you to do it and not feel particularly guilty. Guilt is a terribly, terrible, painful thing. So the idea is to get away with as much as you can and still feel good about yourself and push the envelope as far as you can. And then the brain, if you're still not there, the brain will figure out in these very, very ingenious mechanisms, uh, a brilliant social psychologist by the name of Leon Festinger, who was the first to scientifically show how the brain could dupe itself. When we have a conflict, when we believe one thing to be true, and then something else happens and it creates a huge conflict inside of us, the brain has a way of eliminating the conflict. It just goes away and all of a sudden you're feeling quite good about it. And it's, and it's another one that's called motivated reasoning. This is where I want to end up. And so your brain kind of dupes itself into believing this was the choice you should make all along. It's the only choice you really have and you feel fine about it. Mm. Or, I mean, there I, I identified 25 research-based ways the brain can actually hijack itself, conformity dynamics. Well, another one is, you know, well, I was told to do that and so i don't feel responsible i was told to do these hideous things and it wasn't my doing I, some authority figure told me to do it so i can do anything i want and, and i don't feel badly about it yeah i wouldn't have done it but i was ordered to do it and it goes on and on and on so the brain is very tricky be very careful what you tell it and if you ask the brain to do something and the most important input into the brain comes from your inner voice when your inner voice is instructing that's the closest to what i call command center central in your brain and if that inner voice is not really aligned with ultimately your highest values and sense of purpose and clarity it it can uh, create chaos in the brain and you end up doing things you look back on your life and you go how the hell did i do that yeah. Well, I've always wanted to have an affair or I was I wanted to feel like a good person, but I had an office romance and it was something you figured out a way to do this and you didn't even feel guilty until you got caught. And so we are we have to really work hard to understand how our brain works and then really try to figure out how do we stay ahead of the curve so that we don't look back at our life and go. How did I get here? I don't understand it. And it is this marvelous, you know, evolutionary upgrade that enables us to prevent that from happening. We have to awaken, we have to go from our sleepwalk and realize we have to be very careful what we tell our brains, because it will get you to what you want, even though um, when you look at it in retrospect, you didn't really give it any guidelines You know, you didn't really tell this is the way we're going to get there. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But what's more important than who I be, than what more important than the chase itself is who I become in the chase. We all are chasing something and we need to understand what the guidelines for chasing are and what are the true markers of success in life and work backward.
0: And so that, that inner voice that you talk about in the private voice. Would you would you say that that's a negative force in most people's lives?
1: You know, it's an inter, it's a very interesting thing, um, and I just completed a, a book where I've spent an enormous with a with a co, my co-author Dr. Sheila Olson, um, and we it's called Wise Decisions, and we spent a lot of time talking about and looking at all the data. And I have for a very long time. I'm speaking to you from my public voice. Mm-hmm. And you're speaking to me from your public voice. Yeah. And uh, what you're hoping and what I'm hoping is that our conversation will somehow have an impact, a real impact on those who are listening or watching.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That means it has to somehow be allowed through um, this command central. It has to get into the core of the person you can you can keep stuff out you can block it out you can say it's nonsense you're not going to you know you but our inner voice is the gatekeeper and we've figured out that that this is actually this is the mechanism that has the key the keys to the kingdom is this voice no one hears but you this is your coach this is the voice this is the brain speaking to itself in words the word op- the brain operates like a word and image sensitive computer and it's the inner voice is you can fake your private voice but it's very hard to fake your inner voice. So the inner voice is what tends to get through to the brain and unfortunately that inner voice can be very chaotic, very disruptive and very destructive in many ways. So where does it come from? It actually starts forming there is evidence actually before birth in the womb from the voices the auditory cortex of the of the neonate the the young child before birth is actually capable of receiving impulses from those who are around the child it could be the mother the father the siblings and that all the uh inputs into this child's auditory cortex eventually let's say by the age of five starts to form this very kind of primitive uh, narrative that's in their head that voice whether they're aware of it or not actually starts to form and it usually is the accumulation of all of the authority figures the people they've been around for quite some time and as they get older it becomes more of their peers and then if they're in a gang or a culture or in a business environment the voices of those around them their bosses their authority their ceos have even a more profound effect, but everything is affecting, ultimately, uh, this inner voice that we use to guide us throughout life. And so it is, the you know, some people had wonderful parents. What, What the real acid test is of your inner voice, would you like to have that projected onto a jumbotron where everyone could see everything you said to yourself, the coaching you give to yourself, would you be proud to have other people know how your inner voice is operating? Most people would absolutely be, they'd be mortified to have the voice that they have to themselves blasted publicly. And that's what I call a training, uh, an untrained private voice. I've spent a lot of my life trying to help people to train that voice to become your ultimate coach, the coach that will be with you until your death, so that it's always there that you look. You reference this area of the brain, and I believe it's somewhere very. V- the central agency here in the brain is probably somewhere around this human insula in the brain, which is a. It's kind of a central processing. It's unclear exactly where decisions are made, but it appears the human insula actually is. Um, it's hidden deep within the 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 brain. Um, this uh, the sulcus of the brain, separating the the temporal lobe from the parietal lobe and from the uh, from the from uh, the frontal hemispheres, and it has re- it receives information from every single part of the brain, including all the five sensory portals of the brain, and it's uh, it appears to be a central processing system, and that. We are referencing something in making decisions, and um, so I want to make sure that people are aware that I don't want them to make just off-the-cuff decisions, particularly decisions that may have a a huge effect, even the little decisions. We We can make 15 decisions in the span of five minutes and don't even realize it, all of which may have a profound effect, ultimately. On whether or not we end up at the end of our life where we want to end up, whether it's to exercise, not exercise, eat good food, eat, eat good food or healthy food, you know, doing a million, the way you treated your your spouse or your daughter or son on their way out the door, and a million, those are all decisions in some form. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really for me that the key is not having people make decisions just off the cuff. Yeah. That you actually are using this amazing capacity that we have to think about and reference something deliberately so that we actually feel like, yeah, that was the best I could have done. And now I can go forward. And if it was the wrong decision, at least I felt like I did everything I could to make the decision um, in the best possible
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. way possible that I could do.
0: How important is discipline? I know it's not a very sexy word to use these days and people have maybe negative connotations of it, but is that at the core of this that so if you get people set up to know what their legacy should be, if you have them focused on a clear purpose in life and if you get them, you know, understanding that they have this inner voice and that they have to start to try and control their own brains, is it then about trying to, you know, deliver and make good decisions along this every step of the way and using discipline uh, to make sure that you stay on track?
1: It's a great, it's really a great question. When you look at how our system is engineered, we are creatures of habit. We, we really, um, very few of the decisions we make and the actions that we take, even the words we speak, are mediated by some conscious thought process intentional process so much of our day rolls you just get up at a certain time everything is habituated in some form it's called the automaticity of being that we are you know we if we if every single action we take let's say just lift you know taking a salt shaker and having to pour it unless you've had an injury that's all done automatically so you can save that energy of having to lift the salt shaker and deliberately and intentionally put that on your food you can save that energy because now you've automated that yeah and so the more we can automate our lives in ways that are consistent with where we want to end up we want to establish habits of getting up and eating and sleeping emotional self-regulation um, uh, mental processing mental um really the mindset that we have for the day, the storytelling that we have, we want to try to automate as much as we can through some process so that we don't expend all the energy that every single thing we do has to be intentionally thought through. The only caveat I have there is that when it comes to decision-making, particularly important decision-making, we need to decide, what do we want to habituate? And then when we get to the point of making a very big decision, should I change jobs? Shall I get a divorce? Mm-hmm. Shall I, shall we uh, go on a vacation, even though one of our children can't come and they have to stay because they have a conflict? Those are decisions that, that are required. Yeah, it requires a really, a really comprehensive, intensive look. And then you're trying to use this capacity for what do I want to have as habituated in my life? Maybe I have a lot of habits that are not working for me and I've got to go back and we got bad habits can be horrendous. So when you talk about discipline, discipline is actually discipline and where you allow your energy to flow in the acquisition of habits and ultimately in the acquisition of really important decisions that require intentionality. So discipline, people who look very disciplined are people who have a lot of habits, well established, and they don't have to spend any energy doing that. If kids have learned to do homework in a certain way and have turned off television and they were taught to do that, now they look very disciplined in the way they do their homework. That just didn't come with some raw act of, you know, forced will. That was something that was learned, acquired over a period of time. And now they appear very disciplined. And maybe you have someone who's very disciplined as an athlete and how they work out and all the various parts of maybe even something in basketball shooting, or they're very disciplined in their choices of when to shoot and not to shoot. And all of that was habituated very carefully in coaching. And so we uh, were trying, as our in life, we're trying to get all the habits lined up, the support, Us getting the legacy we want to leave behind because we can't think through every single act like salting uh, something on my dinner table.
0: Yeah. Because I, you know, uh, people have this idea that they want loads of choice, but um, choices is is a problem, isn't it? Because it takes energy to make decisions. And that can be the worst thing. (laughs) You
1: don't make any decision because it's so hard. Decision, we call it decision fatigue. Some people get, you know, to go to a restaurant and say, you know, I don't want to make another decision. I can't do it. You order for me. <laughs> <laughs> you've met my wife, have you?
0: <laughs> um, and I'm just talking about energy because it's so part of your life, isn't it? Uh, yeah. This whole idea of energy management and oscillation. Um, you know, I would have felt that you've been writing about these subjects for so long that everybody would have got it by now, and they'd understand that you, you 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 know the whole key to this is not time management but energy management, and it's all about recovery. So yeah. why why is that message not got through? Because when you say it nowadays, it's like as if it's new news.
1: <laughs> so it's so interesting. Um, an entire industry was developed, a billion dollar industry, it was called time management, it became the the way in which we kind of organized our lives and no one questioned it and i have this bizarre brain where i never look at things the same way anybody else does <laughs> i'm always kind of challenging i love data i love big data sets and i'm always looking at things a little differently than everybody else and that's why i've always been kind of an outlier i've yep. always been a person who's kind of i'm always kind of ahead of the curve and people yep. thought i was a nutcase and i probably <laughs> am but uh we had i mean i i know i knew stephen covey oh uh, right right yeah i met him once a lot of time with him and stephen M R covey his son yeah um served on our board at the human performance institute okay and he just wrote a big endorsement as stephen on our on our book wise decisions and uh and i've confronted them multiple times and because the industry was based on a flawed terribly flawed assumption that no one caught and it was a false promise it's not true and you know stephen senior said not it can't happen it's not there's no way that's true and i said well i'm going to present you with what i believe the false the false promise the false premise is and you tell me how i'm wrong i said here is the premise of time management if you want to have a truly successful life truly successful in every way the first thing you must do is you must know exactly what matters most to you. You must know your values. You must know your sense of purpose. You have to understand your values and prioritize those values. And if you then make very hard and conscious choices as to what matters most, and you carve out time courageously according to those priorities, you will that will begin to build the the profile, the life you want that managing time is the prerequisite is it's basically how you build a successful life. And I said, How close is that to the promise of time of time? And they said, it's 100%. That's it. And I said, well, let me just give you the bottom line. Time has no valence. Time has no power. Time simply is you cannot manage time There's nothing you can do to change it. Time will find its way forward. There's nothing you can do. You manage yourself around time, but you don't manage time. But more important than that, it's not how long you live. It's not how much time you devote to something. It's the energy you bring to the time that you have aligned with the mission. Energy has power, has quantity, quality, force, and intensity. Time does not. Time, you can spend four hours with your family and Mm -hmm. your intent was to show them how much you love them. And you feel really good about it because you carved out four hours. But we put a video camera on you, you were watching television, you were dismissive, you were not engaged, you were somewhere else, you were actually quite angry at times, and you got a reverse return for the investment of that time. You'd have been better off staying at the office. Yeah because you believed you were a good guy for simply being there. And it's not time. It's the energy you brought to the time. You could have been there for 30 minutes and devoted this incredible energy. When you take life out of your body and invest it in someone else or an event, that's how you show you care. It's not showing concern or real care by devoting energy and by devoting time, investing time. And so I started to do that, and they came up with this notion of quality time. And I said, Stephen, time does not have quality. Energy has quality. Energy has quantity, quality, focus, and intensity. So, you know, uh, people are obsessed with time, and we need to be very skilled at managing our time. But that by itself is not going to get the job done. What gets the job done Is the intersection of energy in the time that you have Mm -hmm. and because it's energy investment that is really the 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 powerhouse in our lives we are reservoirs of energy we want to take potential energy and revert and convert it to kinetic energy you have to renew energy because energy in the human system is is not is not infinite it's finite so you have to you can't spend what you don't have Unlike most governments, they could do deficit spending, but the human body doesn't know how to do that. So if you don't renew it, you're not gonna be able to bring the life you want to those you care about and the the things you care about in life. So you have to honor recovery. Recovery is the restoration of energy, the renewal of energy, multidimensional energy, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. If you do that, you can continue spending. And if you wanna have a big life, You've got to be a big spender. You don't get a big life by hoarding energy or by just sitting around doing nothing, thinking that you're watching the crazies go by, spending a lot of their energy and so forth and stressful things. Big life means big spending, and you have to have a lot of energy to do that. And then when you have a life aligned with what you want, that's what really is the that's what we're trying to get to in the but end.
0: The key to having that. Um, for you that people maybe get wrong is that recovery has to happen on a consistent basis routinely. Is that correct?
1: You need to figure out how to get built in recovery. If you have a lot of high stress, a lot of stress that what we call high negative stress, where there's a lot of very powerful adrenal cortical hormones secreted like cortisol, you're likened to the worst gas guzzling auto. And if you don't and you will if you don't pay attention to that um, that cycle of stress, because it's very can be very destructive on the human system. So in the human system, it's really interesting. we're not aware that these powerful adrenal cortical hormones, have such a can be so destructive on every aspect of our health. And when we don't, when we lose our health, we tend to blame old man stress. But when we look back on it, we learned that it wasn't stress. It was the insufficiency of recovery to balance it. And so if you're in a high stress environment and we work with special forces, we work with surgeons, we work with people in very critical situations, that are, they don't know how long they're gonna be there. But if they don't build in what we would call micro bursts of recovery, they're probably gonna lose it. And if you've had a major, major bout of traumatic stress, you're gonna to have to have, follow up just like if you break your arm, you need to put it in a cast and completely protect that cast, um, that arm from further stress until the healing occurs. That's what post-traumatic stress with our veterans. That's what that's all about. And eventually that can become post-traumatic stress growth, as, to, as opposed to being a disorder. But it is recovery. It is the waveform of life. Stress and recovery represent the pulse of life. Everything in life is oscillatory. The, even our blood pressure, everything, it's a waveform. And if we get the only thing that's purely linear in life is death and if you want to have a big life you've got to make big waves and the fitter you are the less time you need to recover you recover more quickly but recovery is not for wimps recovery is actually and i had a ceo who believed sleep was a complete waste of time and that he had come to our center and he was really quite adamant that he hadn't slept for two and a half months and he was on fire and he really was saying to people, "Um, that is just, it's it's a big myth, sleep is not necessary. And I did everything I could to warn him about what would happen and he continued. He had a mental breakdown. He actually ended up in a psychiatric facility because he questioned the natural wisdom of the human body. Our bodies are engineered in a particular way. And maybe at some point, through thousands of years of evolution, we can avoid sleep. But every species in the kingdom has to have recovery in some way to grow. Stress is the stimulus for growth, and recovery is when growth actually takes place. We learn the most in pausing and reflecting. Um, So we can go against nature for a while, but it's going to come back to haunt you, and you're probably going to blame old man stress. And the culprit isn't old, old man stress; it's chronic stress, unabated, by periodic healthful renewal. And that's what keeps us going.
0: Well, I tell you, talking about energy, you have it in spades. <laughs> I love it, and it's been fantastic to talk to you. Can I ask you a slightly rude question? I I, I hope this isn't rude, but like. Uh, I, Am, am I right in saying you're you're about 78 or 78 years young? 79. 79. Like, so, I mean.
1: Don't, accuse, like, me being, don't accuse
0: me of being that young. 78. <laughs> but, but is it like, have we got to reimagine age? Because, I mean, it, it's quite clear. You've just finished another book, number 17. I mean, I'm sure there's others in your head, too. Um, I mean, like, you know, the the, the Queen uh, has just celebrated, I think, 96 years, and she's still in place. Uh, David Attenborough over in this part of the world, he's a naturalist. I don't know if you know him, but, you know, 96 again. Just, I think, age, and, and I don't think organizations have got their head around this yet, that, that you know, they're madly ageist places, um, and they're missing a trick, because I think you're living proof of it.
1: Well, I, I really believe that age, again, is a number, and you age according to how I mean, part of it is genetic, it's in the you're coded in the genes. But the more the more you are on fire, yeah, there's a whole variety of research uh, areas that have confirmed this. The more you have a purpose in life, and the purpose really isn't about you. It's about trying to make some contribution bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, the, large, the longest populations um, are the, the, those who live the longest tend to have a, you know, a very powerful drive to make something happen. And if you have a purpose that, it's called a transcendent purpose, a purpose that takes you well beyond yourself I think it actually it's a system that has so much wisdom in it. It's just incredible that for thousands of years our ancestors survived and it's really curious that there's some research that shows the the faster you walk the further the distance to um from death. And what the slower you walk the probably the closer you are to being, you know, checking out. And what, but even more important to me is this notion that there seems to be the, one of the most dangerous periods in a person's life is the first six months after retirement. And that's because you don't have a defining purpose and the system is trying to figure out the number one priority in this living human organism is the preservation the perpetuation of the species. That takes precedence over everything else. So if you're still around and you have no purpose, you're consuming resources that should be devoted to the young and those that are actually contributing to the survival of your village, of your unit, of whatever. And so the defining moment here is when you step out of stress, when you no longer have stress, the system goes, oh, there must be no reason for you to be here find a way to check this dude out yep so so you have to be a seeker of stress and a stress more likely not so much about you um that you're trying to do something and leave a legacy for others and as long as you have that purpose you know the cells tend to stay healthier and you also tend to take better care of yourself because you don't want to check out, you'd like to complete the mission that you're on. So there are a lot of factors involved, but the system is very smart. And if you be careful what you feed it, um, in this notion that I've done everything I want to do, and now I'm just going to sit on the front porch, watch the crazies go by and sip on, you know, take take a little martini and enjoy life. uh, I have some bad news for you. The most dangerous time in your life will be the period when you're really not driven to do anything.
0: Absolutely. I, I think retirement is, is bad news. It always ends in death. So <laughs> and I know my father he used to say, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. Um But I think maybe the French, the French have a good word for it, isn't it? Uh, raison d'être, a yes. reason to be, a reason to be. And I think we all need that.
1: With all the crazy stuff. Yeah. It's like... Uh, It's like Viktor Frankl said, you know, um, pain is inevitable in life. Inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm. Suffering is pain without a purpose.
0: That's a great, great way to end this because you've got a great purpose and hopefully people read your books and get an insight into the deep thought and the research and the data that you provide, uh, which is fantastic. And I'd just like to say thank you uh, for, for putting those words and getting up at two o'clock in the morning and going through the pain because it's, it's brought a great sense of um, knowledge to, to my life and to many people's lives. So, so thank you so much for, for doing that. And thank you very much for your generosity in talking to us today.
1: Thank you, John, for having me. I can tell from our interview that, you are on the same path I am. You have a very uh, keen interest in making a contribution and you're obviously doing it in a variety of ways. So I always enjoy when I, when I have an interview with someone that I think is very authentic and actually represents kind of the same mission that I'm on. So I appreciate all that you're doing and the contributions that you're making and uh, we'll just keep trying to chase for the right reasons.
0: Let's chase. Let's keep stressed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much. John,
1: I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Take care.
0: What an absolute privilege to spend time in the company of Jim Lair. I really hope you enjoyed that. Those great insights he has from his years of experience. I'm uh, off now to start journaling and <laughs> to pick those six words. Uh, that I want on my gravestone. Hopefully not too soon. Uh, Next up in the Work Healthy podcast, it's the inspiration for Healthy Place to Work, Stanford professor Jeffrey Pfeffer.